Here's a story. Grace is 26 years old. She's just delivered her first baby, a healthy baby girl. But four days later, she's in the emergency room. At about 9 o'clock at night, I developed this wicked, sudden headache. Very sharp, like a pounding. When I laid flat or when I sat down, it would get really, really worse. So the best thing for me was to stand up. I cried a lot. Yeah. All I could do was cry. Her blood pressure was through the roof. Now, Grace is an ER nurse. She also reads a lot. So she already kind of knew the drill. I actually already knew what they were going to do for me. I really did. Even to the point where I started to have the muscular weakness from the magnesium. And I told her, this is related to that. And I'm sure my mag level is high. She was like, oh, let me check with the team. And I'm like, do you have to really check with the team? What happens when a clinician gets sick? In some ways, we know too much. And in other ways, we know too little. Welcome to The Push. This is a pregnancy neurology podcast. You may have already guessed the diagnosis here. Grace had postpartum preeclampsia. Today, we're talking about the neurological complications of preeclampsia, and specifically, the cerebrovascular complications. Three months after her diagnosis, I spoke with Grace in the office about her experience. I was very shocked that you could have preeclampsia after having a baby. I started to think about, you know, the patients that I take care of, and now I'm being on the other side of the bed. For anyone who sees patients for a living, getting sick can be a wake-up call. You realize quickly what you know and what you don't know. Grace had never heard of postpartum preeclampsia, but her story didn't end there. Within days, she was diagnosed with RCVS, or reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome, and subarachnoid hemorrhage. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're probably more familiar with one or two of these diseases, but maybe not all three. Here to bridge the gap, we've assembled a panel of experts. We're going to talk about preeclampsia, what is it, what is the science behind it, and then we're going to talk about RCVS and subarachnoid hemorrhage. In other words, what can happen to the blood vessels inside the head? Finally, we're going to put it all together. Here's Dr. Jane Sharp. She's an obstetrician at Women and Infants Hospital. So what is preeclampsia? The signs and symptoms of preeclampsia is new-onset hypertension with proteinuria in pregnancy after 20 weeks, or new-onset hypertension with evidence of end-organ damage like abnormal LFTs, elevated you know, creatinine, things like that. According to Dr. Sharp, preeclampsia is much more commonly seen in pregnancy than in the postpartum period. And it's so bread and butter for obstetricians that they regularly screen their patients throughout the second half of pregnancy. Every visit we check their blood pressure, every visit we dip their urine for proteinuria. And what happens if you find something? So if a patient comes in and she's found to have a blood pressure, the systolic greater than 140, diastolic greater than 90, we usually repeat it just to you know make sure it wasn't a fluke. Or if she has now two plus protein on her urine dip, we usually send off labs. And the preeclampsia lab panel includes hemoglobin and platelets, creatinine, creatinine, uric acid. We also will do usually protein-creatinine ratio, and if it's at or greater than 0.3, that's consistent with significant proteinuria in pregnancy. Now remember, we're talking about antepartum preeclampsia here. In other words, preeclampsia that happens while a woman is pregnant. And an easiest way to think about it, it's almost like you've become allergic to being pregnant, so therefore the cure is delivery. And how do you decide when to deliver? Depends on her gestational age and how stable she is. Um, If she is greater than 37 weeks, we move towards delivery. If you are remote from term, we have to balance the risk to the mom of continuing the pregnancy versus the risk to the baby of being born remote from term. This is the preeclampsia that most of us neurologists remember from med school. 
obstetricians struggling with that terrifying balance between the health of the mom and the health of the baby. About 3 to 4% of pregnancies are complicated by preeclampsia, and untreated preeclampsia can be very dangerous due to end organ damage. This could mean pulmonary edema, edema or even rupture of the liver, ischemia in the kidneys, cardiac failure, or placental abruption. And if that end organ is the brain, this could mean a hemorrhagic or ischemic stroke. And that especially is concerning if the blood pressure is over 160 over 110. And that's what obstetricians mean when they say severe preeclampsia or preeclampsia with severe features. So what do you do? You manage the blood pressure to prevent stroke and you give IV magnesium for 24 hours to prevent an eclamptic seizure. The highest risk of seizure is during um, labor and delivery. So we usually put them on magnesium during labor and delivery and keep it on for 24 hours postpartum. But why does this even happen? In other words, we've talked about the criteria, but what's the science behind preeclampsia? To answer that question, I spoke with Dr. Erica Werner. She's a maternal fetal medicine specialist at Women and Infants Hospital, and she's a colleague of Dr. Sharp's. One of the many hypotheses is that it's from placental ischemia that leads to the release of, of several things into the maternal bloodstream that ultimately leads to endothelial dysfunction. Um, and that's what causes a woman's blood pressure to go up and for end organ damage to occur. So according to Dr. Werner, the placenta creates these chemicals that end up floating around in the mother's bloodstream. And these chemicals lead to dysfunction of the endothelium of the blood vessels themselves. Dysfunctional blood vessels can result in either vasoconstriction, the cause of the hypertension, for example, or leakage of the vessels, the cause of the edema. If the vasoconstriction is severe, the vessel can burst, resulting in hemorrhage, or it can block up altogether, resulting in ischemia. When the baby's delivered, the placenta is out of there, and so usually this clears up the problem. But what about postpartum preeclampsia? Well, according to Dr. Werner, this can happen when those chemicals are still floating around in the mother's bloodstream. So while rare, it's definitely possible for them to start making problems for mom after the baby's born. When I think of delivery as being the cure, it's that once you deliver the patient, the impetus for the damage stops. So you may still see the symptoms of preeclampsia, but it's time limited at that point. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes you just have to wait it out. How long do you have to wait it out? Dr. Werner told me that postpartum preeclampsia, in other words, a new diagnosis of preeclampsia following delivery, can present anywhere from two to 10 days typically. But if a woman has it, it can actually take up to three months to totally resolve and for the blood pressure and kidney function to return to normal. This is actually what happened to Grace. She had gone to the emergency room with high blood pressure and sudden onset headache. She had a normal head CT at the time and she was treated with magnesium and sent home. But just 36 hours later, she had another sudden onset severe headache, and at home, her blood pressure shot up to the 160s over 100s. She went back to the ER. But oddly enough, when she got there, the headache was still there, but the blood pressure had normalized. And I was still standing all night, crying, won't lay down, won't sit. And then I had a, an internist came to see me, and based on his evaluation, he thought it was a migraine. He said it was a migraine. And I'm like, no, this is not a migraine. The initially normal blood pressure had Grace's doctors pretty confused. It's important to remember that in preeclampsia, the blood pressure and also the headaches can fluctuate. When Grace's blood pressure shot up again to the 170s, the diagnosis became more obvious. The preeclampsia had never really gone away. Grace was back on magnesium, and her doctors decided to repeat her neuroimaging at that point. 
And that's because there were some headache red flags. Let's see if you picked up on any of them. I'm like, no, this is not a migraine. Okay. Many patients will say this. It's not a migraine. But talking to Grace later in the office, what she really meant was, this was a new onset headache. In neurology, we think about workup for secondary headaches if it's a patient's first or worst headache. Next. And I was still standing all night, won't lay down, won't sit. Grace spent most of her time in the emergency room standing up, and that's because lying down made her headaches worse. A strongly positional headache, worse lying down than standing up, should also make you think about secondary causes of headache. The tests she ultimately got were a non-contrast MRI, MRA, and MRV. And these tests can rule out cerebral edema, which you'd see if the cause of the headaches was an underlying mass. These tests also rule out abnormal cerebral vascular malformations, ischemic or hemorrhagic strokes, pituitary apoplexy, and cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. These are the most worrisome diagnoses on the list of secondary headache causes. Now, there's one more red flag. It was something I told you earlier. Grace's headache was severe and sudden in onset. Doctors have a special name for headaches that achieve maximal intensity within seconds. We call these thunderclap headaches. When I use the term thunderclap headache, as a neurologist, what comes to your mind? So the first thing that I think about is a subarachnoid hemorrhage or hemorrhage on the surface of the brain. That's Dr. Shadi Yagi, a vascular neurologist at Rhode Island Hospital. His first thought was the right one. Grace's MRI showed a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And when you see subarachnoid hemorrhage, there's something else you should think about. The most important thing that we need to rule out when people have a subarachnoid hemorrhage is an aneurysm. Fortunately, aneurysm was ruled out as a cause. So were all the other conditions I mentioned. A confirmatory CTA was done, just to be sure, and no aneurysm. At that point, Grace was in the neuro ICU. One test she had held an important clue to the diagnosis. Transcranial Doppler ultrasounds, or TCDs, showed that Grace's cerebral arteries had become constricted in parts, and the blood moving through them was moving too fast. These findings can be seen in a particular neurological condition. Reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome, or RCVS for short, is something that can happen postpartum to women like Grace. What is RCVS? It happens when the blood vessels in the brain, they clamp down and the pressure goes up in them and, uh, and then they can leak blood and cause bleeding uh, on the surface of the brain. In other words, the RCVS, or blood vessel constriction, was the cause of the subarachnoid hemorrhage. RCVS actually has some direct links to preeclampsia. And there's another name for it, postpartum angiopathy. It can occur in pregnancy, but most likely it happens after delivery. It can also occur outside of pregnancy, in patients with hypertension and migraine, or using vasoactive drugs like antidepressants, triptans, or allergy nasal sprays. For Grace, the diagnosis was made with TCDs, but you could also see focal narrowing or beating of the blood vessels on a CTA, an MRA, or a conventional angiogram. The R in RCBS is for reversible, and that's a good thing. We usually monitor patients, and usually the vasoconstriction totally subsides in a few weeks, up to three months. The outcome is really good unless they have a major hemorrhage and they have disabling symptoms uh, from their hemorrhage. Uh, for the most part, it's usually a minor hemorrhage uh, that subsides. The, the most debilitating problem with it is a headache, uh, is the headache that tends to persist for a few weeks. So how do you treat it? Dr. Yagi recommends calcium channel blockers, drugs like verapamil and nemotipine. 
They're not specifically approved for this condition, but most clinicians use them. And on an interesting side note, there's one other treatment you can try. I've had one patient with RCVS who had a severe headache. We tried everything, nothing worked for the headache. Once we tried magnesium, she was all better and the headache was gone. Magnesium. The very same supplement that the obstetricians use to prevent eclamptic seizures, but in oral form, can treat both the headaches and the vasoconstriction of RCVS. We've talked about preeclampsia, the screening, the criteria to make a diagnosis, and the mechanisms, vasoconstriction and leaky vessels. We've talked about RCVS. That's what happens when you have vasoconstriction in the brain. But what about leaky vessels of preeclampsia? Can that happen in the brain too? The answer, absolutely it can. This, folks, is what PRESS is. PRESS stands for Posterior Reversible Encephalopathy Syndrome. Besides strokes and RCVS, PRESS is the other major vascular cause of headaches and preeclampsia. Here's Dr. Yagi again. So it can cause headaches, seizures, confusion, and blurred vision. There's increased blood flow where there's leakage of fluid and swelling in the back part of the brain. Unlike RCVS, where you see thunderclaps, sudden onset headaches, the headaches of PRESS are gradual and onset. But in pregnancy in particular, there's substantial overlap between these two neurological conditions, RCVS and PRESS, and the tie-in is the preeclampsia. Either it makes them leaky or it makes them clamp down. If they're leaky, PRESS can happen. If they're clamped down, RCVS can happen. On the other hand, you know, they can be leaky and clamped down, and they can cause PRESS and RCVS. It's kind of funny to talk about a Venn diagram in a podcast, but bear with me for a minute. I want you to picture three overlapping circles. They overlap with each other, and they overlap in the middle. In one circle, you have pregnancy. Another, RCVS, the vasoconstriction. And the third, PRESS, the leaky vessels. When they overlap with pregnancy and the postpartum period, the mechanism, at the very least, should make you think of preeclampsia or the preeclampsia-eclampsia spectrum. In the center, all three can overlap. But actually, PRESS and RCVS can overlap with each other outside of pregnancy, too. Between 8 and 38% of cases of RCVS also show signs of PRESS on the MRI. And what does that mean? The MRI shows these big, bright patches, in other words, T2 hyperintensities in the posterior white matter. Now, like RCVS, there are a lot of cases of PRESS that don't relate to pregnancy. They can be caused by high blood pressure or the use of immunosuppressant or transplant medications. When I talked to Dr. Werner, the maternal fetal medicine specialist, about PRESS and RCVS, she mentioned that PRESS in particular has a name in OBGYN. In other words, when we mention the gradual onset headache, the visual changes, the seizures, and the confusion, she was like, yeah, that's what eclampsia is. And in fact, in patients where you see all that, it's actually more of a clinical diagnosis. And I very rarely would get an MRI because if you have the diagnosis and you get an MRI, you're going to see press. Even before it gets to that point, Dr. Werner pointed out that having headaches and elevated blood pressure in the third trimester of pregnancy is pretty much considered preeclampsia until proven otherwise. And as for the headaches you see on the preeclampsia-eclampsia spectrum, they can take on different forms. They may be sudden or gradual in onset, and they can be intermittent. Grace didn't have three separate diseases, in other words. She had one, preeclampsia, with two related cerebrovascular consequences, RCVS and a resultant subarachnoid hemorrhage. Grace's doctors knew what she had, but they were all using different names for the same thing. 
And Dr. Sharp, the OBGYN, she sees us all the time. We who focus on one part of the body call it this. You who focus on another part of the body call it that. But it's all coming from the same thing. We started this podcast with a clinician who got sick. She quickly learned what she knew and what she didn't know. Then we learned about cerebrovascular consequences of preeclampsia, the presentations, the different names, but the concept of blood vessel dysfunction at the root of it all. Here's Dr. Sharp again. One of my big hopes is that we learn to communicate with each other because that is how we can best care for patients. That's how we can help teach each other so we can be better providers for our patients. Many patients feel that their doctors are all in silos and that their care is disjointed and that they wish all their doctors could talk to each other so that their care could be more unified and effective. Um, so encouraging people to not be scared of your OBGYN colleagues and to try to, even if we have no clue what you're talking about, be patient with us so we can learn from each other. And definitely for us neurologists, the feeling is mutual. Grace made a 100% recovery within three months, as our experts predicted. Thank you to our experts, Dr. Jane Sharp, an obstetrician at Women and Infants Hospital, and Dr. Erica Werner in the Department of Maternal Fetal Medicine at Women and Infants Hospital. Dr. Shadi Yagi in the Neurology Department at Rhode Island Hospital. None of our experts were directly involved with Grace's case. Music is by Tom Van Buskirk. Production assistance by Megan Hall. Special thanks to Bob Levenger in the Lifespan Development Office and to Larry Warner and the Rhode Island Foundation for making this podcast possible. <laughs>